anytime I, I preach a sermon, I feel a little bit sheepish or humbled or daunted because I'm about to talk about something that I have not arrived at. It's always the case. I'm, I'm generally calling you to something that I also long for or I'm calling you to long for something that I long for. In this case, I have a strong desire today as I talk about the necessity of emotion. I have a strong desire as the, the, the idealist that I am to feel all the things that I should feel about the right things to the right extent. I want to feel deeply. I tell our staff, our campus outreach staff all the, t- all the time, I want to feel all the feelings. <laughs> I want to feel a lot I can feel. I want to feel the spectrum, the sorrows and the joys. I want to feel them uh, partly because, you know, I'm an ENFP on the Myers-Briggs. I'm sure that has something to do with it. Some of you guys are ISTJs and whatever you are. But uh, I have this deep desire to feel all the things I ought to feel because I find day in and day out that I'm not feeling those things either at all or rightly in my picture of heaven, I was talking to Dave Bruner and Craig Harris about this the other day. My picture of heaven, I think Dave said, he's like, to, to step into the afterlife with Jesus is to step into a place where now when you see a staggering reality, you feel it proportionately. You feel it the right way. So I have a longing for that, but I've not, I'm, not, I'm nowhere close to having arrived at it. So I'm going to be challenging you in the next little while, hopefully little while, uh, with this stuff, with, with a call for our general emotional tenor of our church to intensify, to move to the extremes, to move to the extremes of, of sorrow and joy with an accent on the joy, uh, for that tide to generally rise. And I'm telling you that I've, it, it feels daunting to me because I'm really just calling you to join me in trying to get somewhere that I'm not even close to. That's probably true of every sermon. So if you would pray with me uh, to that end, we'll get started. Lord, I know that we have been created into a world of intensity. That you in your heart are extreme in the wonders of your emotional life. And the things you have made solicit, ought to solicit from us powerful emotions. But I confess, along with everybody in here, that we don't measure up to that. And so I pray that you would infuse into us by your spirit. You, you You would pour out your spirit in us that we would begin to just taste. Begin to taste more, to taste and see that you are good. To agonize over the things that break your heart. To rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Would you do that through your word just in this next little while and and, and spark things in our hearts today in Jesus' name. Amen. The text that we're going to look at today is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verses 4 through 13. This is not an expository sermon. I'm not going to be chewing on, you know, 22 times on, on, on 2 Corinthians 6, 4 through 13 to get everything I can out of it. But it is a jumping off point for us and will probably be a little bit of home base. So you can read through 2 Corinthians 6, 4 through 13 with me if you'd like or you can just listen. Uh, I will let you know that this sermon is probably really a five-part series in one sermon. Uh, so take your questions and take your intrigue if you have it and, and run with it. That's the point of sermons anyway. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 4, Paul is defending his ministry 
uh, to the Corinthians in Corinth, this Greek culture. He's defending the authenticity of their ministry in order to defend the authenticity of the true gospel of Christ against these super apostles who have their own values of, of worldly wisdom and other things. And they are trying to call Paul and his band imposters. And so Paul is defending the ministry by talking about the, circum- the external and internal circumstances surrounding what they've been going through. And this is what he says. Verse 4. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That's our key phrase. As poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. And then he says this, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. So when I read this text, and I, and I get a little feel for the circumstances, and the, both the external circumstances and the internal experiences that Paul and his crew are experiencing, it just feels really intense. Uh, and this is true of a lot of texts that I read in the Bible. It feels more intense than the normal day-to-day experiences that I have. Like a lot more intense. Now granted, Paul was an apostle and he lived in a cultural context where he was being persecuted for his faith uh, as he went around about sharing something that a lot of people didn't want to hear. But I can't help but notice that this, that there's a stark contrast between the way that he talks here and the way that I live day-to-day. The way that we, we live here in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. When he says things like, through great endurance and afflictions and hardships and calamities and then moves in inwardly and says by purity and knowledge and patience and kindness and the Holy Spirit and genuine love. He talks about having weapons of righteousness for the right hand and through the left through honor and dishonor through slander and praise and then he gives, goes into this contrast between the way that they're treated or the way that they're experiencing life out here and what's going on in here and he says we are treated as imposters and yet are true. We are unknown and yet well-known we're dying like actually dying or close to it he says in chapter 4 verse 11 and 12 for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh so death is at work in us and he means like physical type of death but life in you so there's internal life because of our dying in front of you in the or taking persecution in front of you like Jesus. And he goes on, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed. And he, then he gets to this phrase, verse 10, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And I want to expand upon, expound upon that phrase. Here in the text, I think Paul is primarily saying sorrowful is what it appears that we would be plus, and I would add to that, what we're actually experiencing. These kinds of circumstances would inevitably draw you into a place of sorrow, right? Sorrow would come from that. And yet, he says, we're always, our foundational internal reality is that we're always rejoicing. But he still, 
I think sorrowful yet always rejoicing is a paradigmatic statement for the Christian life. Not just external, internal, but internal, internal. There is internal sorrow and internal joy to the extremes in the Christian life, and we ought to live like that to both extremes. So the first point in your outline, if you're looking at it, is the Christian life is not one of emotional moderation. The Christian life is not one of emotional moderation. I think in the evangelical church in the last few generations, there has been kind of a baby bathwater situation that we have dealt with, meaning the baby has been thrown out with the bathwater, which is a gruesome analogy. Um, But the idea of certain traditions in, in, in the Christian faith that have exalted emotion and emotional expression to the utmost, even to the extent of making it a somewhat legalistic standard to say you must express your emotions this way. In corporate worship, for example, there, there's a sensationalism, a drumming up of emotion that has felt, I think, out of control and perhaps not in line with true doctrine that has caused us in reaction, like evangelicals in reaction, to suppress the value, to diminish the value of emotion. Because you have some, some traditions where it's like we can drum up emotion through playing the right combination of a C chord and a G chord and someone will say, well, the Holy Spirit is with us, is he not? And I don't know whether he is just because the music sounds good. Like that, that's not really why the, the Holy Spirit would be with you. But when we see that, those of us who want to remain solid in our doctrine, those who want to take every thought captive to Christ, and those, who, uh, those of us who don't want to be out of control, diminish the value of emotion. So we exalt the intellect, we, we exalt doctrine, which we should. And we exalt action, the good works that flow from the things we believe, which we should. But I think along the way, we have diminished the essential, and I say essential nature of emotion. What it means to be a Christian, to, to walk as a Christian, is to feel. Not just to believe and to do, but to feel. I believe that we are saved by faith, not by emotion. I believe that we are saved by the object of our faith. I'll talk about that in a little while. But the, the fruit in someone's life, the fruit, the kinds of good work type of fruit that come from the belief that you have in Jesus is emotional fruit. We move to extremes in that way so another way to say that would be when we see certain facts about Jesus we don't simply give assent to those things the our understanding of those things is not an end in of itself it ought to make us emote in an extreme way so we just sang a song that said uh, and when I think that God his son not sparing sent him to die I scarce can take it in and I can't help but think, and I'm included in this, that most people in here were singing that, and you could scarce take it in. You could take it in. You know? It's like we, we sing these songs and we go, that the, it said the God who never had a beginning, who existed in Trinity from all eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, decided for the rebels that are in this room who are tiny little specks in this universe. He decided, and, and those little specks decided, we, did, we want to be God, not you, giant, awesome creator of the universe. We would rather be God, so we're done with you. And he said, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna become a speck like you, a, a, 
one of you guys, and I'm going to take on weakness, I'm going to take on sickness, I'm going to take on this whole emotional makeup, and then I'm going to live a life of suffering and obedience, and then I'm going to go die the most humiliating death possible. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, there's a reason that it says I scarce can take it in. Because when we say that fact, it should change our emotions. I was at a, a Desiring God conference several, several years ago and John Piper just very clearly and over and again said, facts change emotions. He said, facts change, that's how he talks. He talks, he's super intense. He said, facts change emotions. And he gave an example of how if you are sitting right here and you got a phone call that you had to take and you walked out and it said that your child was in a car accident and was in the hospital, your emotions would change. That fact would change your emotions. And I'm saying it's inordinate, it's disproportionate that we would hear about Jesus and what he has done and it not change our emotions. That we would say, I scarce can take it in. And so when we look in the scriptures, we find texts everywhere that are full of emotional feeling and or expression. It says in 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, this is on the rejoicing side. Though you have not seen him, wait, this is a typo. Though you, we'll just pick up it, though you do not now see him. Though you do not now see him, it says though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And I'll just ask you, have you felt joy that's inexpressible and full, full of glory today? Is that your normal response to the fact that you're going to see Jesus? Joy inexpressible and full of glory. Which is why when I read 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, it feels like an occasion for repentance. Because I haven't felt that way. And then you look on the other side. In Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Paul says this about his... his fellow kinsmen the Jews he says I am speaking the truth in Christ I am not lying my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ I can't even fathom this this is what he's saying cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers the Jews my kinsmen according to the flesh he's saying they don't know Jesus they have a zeal for God but it's not in accordance with knowledge that's what he says in the next chapter they don't understand the righteousness of Jesus. They're going to be judged by their own righteousness and they're not going to make it. And so they're going to step into an eternity of agony as soon as they die. And so he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Unceasing anguish. And I remember some years ago, we were at one of our summer training projects with Campus Outreach and we had given a talk during our evangelism training uh, time on the reality of hell because we were learning how to develop a heart for the souls of people and a young lady in our ministry came up to me afterwards and she said Matt I've had a really hard time lately I just don't know how to stop feeling sad about hell and I said who says you're supposed to stop feeling sad about hell Paul had unceasing anguish in his heart about hell you're supposed to carry that sorrow with you. That's what it is to walk as a believer. It, in that sense, Christ, the Christian life does not get easier, but harder in that sense. We should feel more extreme emotions, both sorrow and joy, than we did before we were Christians. Becoming a Christian is not a band-aid for your emotion. Becoming a Christian, the, 
the freedom of being welcomed into the kingdom of Christ and not being able to be crushed by anything because you have adoption as sons and daughters into his household, it enables you not to be crushed by the things that you were trying to escape before. So you can actually think about hell and it hurts. You have anguish and it doesn't mean that God is not sovereign and good and that the always rejoicing doesn't come and undergird that sorrow. It just means you are called to carry that sorrow. That's, mean it, that's what it means to walk as a believer. You carry that sorrow. So, before I go any further, I want to give a disclaimer and say that there is a difference between emotional expression and emotional feeling. There are different types of people in this room. There are different wirings. There are ISTJs and ENFPs and whatever personality tests you've ever done. Different people have different mood scales. Sometimes I'll talk with my friends about the mood scale. Say, what's your mood scale? Like, what's your lowest low and your highest high? You're one to ten, you're four to seven, you know, where do you fit in there? And different people are different mood scale in this room. What I am calling us all to is to be stretched. I'm just saying that each person's rubber band has a different elasticity here according to your God-given and good wiring. So if, you know, while we're doing corporate worship, we're just saying, if while we're doing corporate worship, you may be feeling a certain way, like I used to go to a church in Minneapolis and it was a little more, a little more charismatic in its expression than ECBC, not so much, not as much as a lot of other places. But my wife and I would sit in this one row a lot of the time near the college students and there was a lady that sat in front of us that we knew and loved and she would take her box of Kleenex for every service because she was going to use that whole thing and she would put her hands up like this and she would sway the whole time and she would cry until that box of Kleenex was gone feeling and expressing her sense of sorrow and joy about probably her sin and the grace of God and whatever else she's dealing with I don't know and what I'm saying is There are times when I would watch her and say, I wish I could feel whatever she's feeling. Because it was just tears of joy. It was amazing to watch. And she was like a 65-year-old lady. But then down down the row, there may have been somebody standing there. At Bethlehem, everybody sang. Okay, you had very few people who weren't singing. But but they may have just been standing there with their arms crossed. Or they may, you know, maybe a hand here. uh, Something like that. And I'm not going to presume upon that person and say, well, maybe they, they weren't feeling what they should have been feeling. I don't know what your expression is going to do to you. In general, I would say, if you're singing about God and his son not sparing, and you're kind of going, God son not sparing, like that, I'm like, that, that is a little inordinate to me. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Maybe you're self-conscious about your voice because <laughs> it's not good. You can't hit pitches, and that's okay. I'm just saying we can't, we don't know people's hearts enough to know when their expression is like, is this much of a hand raise, meaning you're really feeling it, or this? Like, I, I, I don't know the answer to that. So hear me say, I'm not here to judge your expression. I'm here to call us all together to feel deeply the extremes of sorrow and joy that we see in the scriptures. Just to say, maybe to say this, if, if any of you guys have ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, um, there's a character called Puddle Glum. In the silver chair, it was, in the original order, it was the fourth book of the Chronicle of Narnia. And Puddle Glum is a marsh wiggle. He lives in, uh, his background is in these kind of super boring, muddy, gray marshes. And so, you know, different background. And he's a, he's a fairly cynical character. 
And he'll, he'll always kind of look at the glass half empty, but super faithful. He cares about Aslan, who is the Jesus character in the book. And I think C.S. Lewis put him in the book to say there are different wirings. And we're not here to judge people's wirings. We're here to call people to what the scriptures are calling them to. And I think what the scriptures are calling you to is not to just feel fine. I don't, I don't think we can just feel fine. Like if God were giving us a multiple choice and saying, how does this make you feel? The fact that there are people in the world currently dying. How does that make you feel? One of the options is not fine. C, fine. That, that's an inordinate response. There are staggering realities in the universe. And so feeling just numb or fine or in the middle, it's not where Christians go. We move out to the fringes of emotion because of that. Because if you start to think for a minute, just think. Right now, as I speak... All over the world, boom, 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 boom. People who were never meant to die but are now cursed. And therefore, this great enemy, which is death, which is sending them off into the afterlife, either to eternal bliss, the likes of which you've never tasted, or eternal torment, the likes of which you've never known. That's happening right now over and over and over again. We can't just go, huh. That's, that's, that's either happy or sad. The magnitude of these things. The mag- there are people, at the same time, there are people being born. There are people getting married. Yesterday I did a wedding. A co-mingling of souls. Two people dying to themselves to take on a new identity as one. Happening all the time. When my daughter was born, my first daughter, Annie, she just turned nine. I remember, it was just, all of a sudden there's a person there, right? And I remember looking at her and I couldn't. I couldn't express, talk about joy inexpressible, I couldn't move my face. I just remember sitting there going, that's a person. That person, in some direct, not ultimate, but direct way, we made her. And now she will never cease to exist. That, if, if you're not yet a parent, maybe I scared you away. Annie will never cease to exist. Uh, that is so intense. It's just so incredibly intense. And so fine is just not how we can handle that. And if that kind of birth is intense, how much more new birth? We've had a handful of students come to faith at the College of Charleston and Citadel in the last couple of weeks. And, and I always, whenever a student comes to faith, someone says, they came to faith, there's this one thing in me that's like shrewd as a serpent, and this is a dove type thing on the shrewd side where it's like, okay, tell me, let's see where they are in six months. But there's this other side that wants to rejoice with the angels in heaven over one sinner who repents. There's a party in heaven when people repent. When their heart of stone is taken out and their heart of flesh is put in. And they now see the world with freedom and joy and hope. Ways that they never saw it before. There's part of me that wants to be part of that party. But you know what I do sometimes? And this is where it's just so Painful. I go, that's great. And then Georgia scores a touchdown. And I go, come on! That's what I do. You know, we live in a college football culture, right? And we get so jacked about whoever scores a touchdown or whatever it is. And it's still, and we know this. We know it's ridiculous as I say it. There are 78,000 people gathered around a field where they have arbitrarily drawn chalk marks and you move from one end to the other trying to get a pigskin into a, an end zone. I love college football. I'm a big Georgia Bulldogs fan. It's a good time to be a Bulldogs fan. I'm just saying it's so strange that I would go, come on, for a touchdown. 
And when I find that someone's eternity has been shifted in a moment, forever, that I say, that's good, it's good, it's fine. It doesn't make sense. That's all I'm saying. It's, it's inordinate. We move to extremes. In the Two Towers by J.R. Tolkien, I gotta get myself together. In the Two Towers by J.R. Tolkien, he, he wrote The Lord of the Rings, and this is the second book. It's gonna sound nerdy if you've never read it before. You can come with me. Uh, Gandalf, this is a spoiler, Gandalf the Grey falls into the abyss, and in the second book, he comes back as Gandalf the White. He's a wizard, kind of a god type character. And uh, he's changed, he's matured. And these two hobbits, these little halfling people, half sized people, are talking. Their names are Pippin and Mary. And they're talking about how Gandalf is when he comes back. And, and Pippin says he's close, isn't he? Like not changed at all, meaning close like to himself. Oh, yes, he is, said Mary. He, 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 he has changed. He says he's grown or something. He can be both kinder and more alarming, merrier and more solemn than before. I think he has changed, but we have not yet, have not had a chance to see how much yet. He has changed. That he has moved to the extremes. He's kinder and more alarming. He's merrier. He's like, he's, the levity and the gravity of his life, both of these things have moved. We, we ought to be people of great humor because of what we know about the celebration of heaven that's coming just on the other side. And at the same time, we should, we should feel the deep weight of our sin. Deep, deep weight. The deep weight of the brokenness of the world. The deep rate of, weight of the fact that in general, people are walking around with hostility toward one another. We live in a nation with pretty high racial tension right now. And that's not even to speak of other nations and uh, genocide in the evil of this broken world that would cause us to have constant unceasing anguish in our hearts. Now, if you are in a really emotional person and you're like, I'm pretty extreme, I feel pretty good about myself, I'm pretty extreme. Uh, I would say to you, mo- usually an emotional person right now would say, you don't know what it's like to be this emotional. I can't handle myself. Um, and I would say, no, no. You, on the one hand, we ought to feel extreme things about the right things. So if you're extremely emotional about, with your financial anxiety, like anxiety about your financial security, I would say that's just sin. God has called us to be content with what we have to keep ourselves free from the love of money. So if you're super amped up about your finances, I would say that that's called sin. But the response, the right response to that, or, or, let me give you another example. Let's say that you have an individual in your family, a child who's not walking with Jesus. And it's just tough for you to carry. You could think, I can't handle this pain, so I'm just going to shut it off. I need to go stoic here. Because I can't control my emotion here. That's not the right response as a believer. The right response is to get on your face before the Lord and beg him to shift your emotions to feel those extreme things in the right ways according to truth. It's like uh, in, in the X-Men series, there's a character called Cyclops. And Cyclops, his power is that he shoots fire from his eyes. And, uh, and he has this visor that he puts on so he can control his beam. And that, that's basically what the truth is. But it doesn't mean we shut off our beam. If our beam is the intensity of emotion, it doesn't mean we diminish the absolute value of our emotion from zero. We keep that absolute value. We increase it. And then we say, Lord, would you aim it in the right direction by truth through the scriptures? Stoicism is not the proper 
Christian response. It is a wonderful privilege we have to be able to feel emotion. So I want to give you guys just a couple, couple more arguments to follow to help us land on the call of the Lord to feel. I'm going to fly through these so we can get to the end. Last service I didn't get to the end and I want to get to the end. So this is point number two. The life of our Lord, just like ours, the life of our Lord is not one of emotional moderation. In Hosea 11, the Lord is calling to his people who've been running away from him. And he says, when I see you running away, how can I give you up? He says, all my compassions are kindled. My heart recoils within me. All my compassions are kindled. And I'm not going to execute my burning anger. So what he says is, I'm carrying with me. The Lord is carrying with him both intense compassion, his heart recoiling within him. God is using anthropomorphic language here. It means God is speaking in human terms so you can understand who he is. My heart recoils within me. And my compassions are kindled. So here's like the positive, sweet, loving emotion. And he says, I'm not going to execute my burning anger. So he's carrying both of these emotions together. The Lord is intense in his emotional makeup. There's a doctrine called impassibility of God. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this doctrine. It's not talked about too often. But the the doctrine states that God cannot suffer. He cannot be, um, he cannot emotionally be impacted to suffer by people I have a hard time subscribing to impassibility. I understand that our God sits in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. And if God's counsel cannot be thwarted and he is God, therefore people cannot ultimately affect his ultimate plans. I get that. But it's clear from the scriptures over and again that he is emotionally affected or emotionally pained, emotionally jealous, emotionally angry and all of these things. This is the life of our God. And then Jesus, much the same way, it says in John 11 that when he finds out about how these people are responding to Lazarus's death, he's deeply moved. He's troubled in his heart. And he, he actually wept. It says in John 11:35, short verse, Jesus wept. Now, another sermon would be to tell you what I think the right interpretation of that text is. I think there's a complexity of emotion in Jesus that goes beyond simple compassion there. He's troubled deeply in his spirit and you see that deep troubling in his his both compassionate and and angry exasperated perplexed type of deeply moved stuff going on in his heart you see it move him all the way to Gethsemane when he's sweating drops of blood in anguish about his impending death and the impending separation from his father and you see him on the cross saying my God my God why have you forsaken me and also praying in the high priestly prayer in John 17 that the disciples would know the kind of intense joy that he has had with the Father since the beginning. Both and. And so G.K. Chesterton says in a book called Orthodoxy, which is a wonderful scatterbrained book, he says, there I found an account, as he read the scriptures, there I found an account, not in the least of a person with his hair parted in the middle or his hands clasped in appeal, that means like the pictures you might see of Jesus who's got like a lamb on one knee and a child on the other, just kind of like, just, just serene. He's saying, that's not what I saw. He said, I saw an extraordinary being with lips of thunder and acts of lurid decision, flinging down tables, casting out devils, passing with the wild secrecy of the wind from mountain isolation to a sort of dreadful demagogy, a being who often acted like an angry God and always like a God. 
The diction used about Christ has been, and perhaps wisely, sweet and submissive. But the diction used by Christ is quite curiously gigantesque. It is full of camels leaping through needles and mountains hurled into the sea. Here we must remember the difficult definition of Christianity already given. Christianity, this is the key. If you want to take something from this quote, here's the key. Christianity is a superhuman paradox whereby two opposite passions may blaze beside each other. So as he characterizes this person of Jesus, he says, in Jesus there are two opposite passions blazing beside each other. And that's what we're called to. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Two opposite passions blazing beside each other. That is full humanity. We are made in the image of this emotional God and we are made to be conformed to the image of this emotional Christ, the Son. And full humanity is found in the entirety of the spectrum. If you want to know Jesus, the entirety of that spectrum needs to be at least pursued, if not experienced. Number three, love itself is an emotion. I realize that that's controversial when I say it. Um, I believe when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, when he calls, he calls what they've been using or living in line with genuine love, he's not just saying we have done stuff that's loving. I think he's saying genuinely in our hearts, in a way that's different from these super apostles, we have genuine love. I don't believe that love is separate from an act of the will. I just don't believe that love is exclusively an act of the will. One of the reasons I believe that is because in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3, it says, If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And what I think that means is I could do the most loving, seemingly the most loving act I could do. I could give up my body to be burned. I could give away everything I have and someone say, how loving is that person? But Paul says there's a possibility that you would not have love when you do that, which seems to imply to me that love on some essential level is an emotion. Love is an emotion. You have to feel a certain way when you love someone, not just act a certain way or think a certain way, but feel a certain way towards God or towards people. And it says in Galatians 5 that the whole law is summed up in this, that you love your neighbor as yourself. So in that sense, the entire Christian life is based on something that is, at its core, an emotion. This is, this is why that's hard, if you move to point four. Stoic obedience is not true obedience. Emotionless obedience is not true obedience. There was a, my old pastor was talking about, in, in an interview, he was talking about, uh, he was in either college or seminary, and the, the professor gave them a book by a, a philosopher, theologian, who said, God can only command the things that you can volitionally perform. And he said his gospel nose started to go off, and he smelled something funny. <laughs> that didn't smell right, that you could only be commanded to do. You can't command the emotions because you can't control the emotions. You could only, control, you could only be commanded things that you could volitionally do. He said, that doesn't smell right. Because he knew from growing up in a family where they read the Bible that God is commanding our emotions all the time. God is always, always commanding our emotions. A couple of examples. Philippians 4, verse 4. A lot of us know this verse. We tell it to our kids. It's hard for our kids to control it, but we tell it to them anyway. I tell my kids this all the time. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You Feel happy 
That's the command. Feel happy. Feel thankful. Feel fill in the blank. Or in 2 Corinthians 9, a few chapters after this, when it's talking about giving in the, in the generosity of the Macedonian church, in, in verse 7, it's saying you, you shouldn't give under compulsion. You should make up your mind how you want to give. But when you give, give freely, cheerfully, because God loves a cheerful giver. The implication is God does not love it if you don't give cheerfully. So if you give, but you don't give cheerfully, you're not really obeying, not all the way. Now, I would never tell you, therefore, don't give, right? That would be a silly conclusion. But I would tell you, if you don't give cheerfully, you ought to repent of your lack of cheerfulness because you're not obedient in that moment because your heart is not cheerful. Stoic obedience is not true obedience. It says in Revelation 3, be zealous, Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, be zealous and repent. Or in James chapter 2, verse 19, this is the scary one to me. He's talking to the people in James and he says, uh, he says, you believe that God is one. I think I have this text. You believe that God is one. Where are we? You do well. You believe that God exists. You give intellectual assent to the fact that God exists. You do well. The demons do the same thing. Every time Jesus sees a demon in the, in the Gospels, they say, what have we to do with you, son of the most high, high God, Jesus, son of the most high God? We know who you are, but they're afraid. He says the demons do well. You do well. The demons, they believe and they shudder, which means, I think he's saying, at least they shudder. And so we investigate, we just examine our own hearts. Do I shudder? at least, right? Do I, do I feel, what is the emotional response that I feel? Hopefully not just shuddering, but a, a sense of awe and wonder and gratitude and hope and thanksgiving and, and love. But I think the reason that this has happened, the reason that we have decided that certain philosophers and theologians have neglected the commanding of emotions, I think one of the reasons that has happened is because Emotion isn't within our control, and therefore, if he calls us me to do something, calls me to do something I can't control, self-righteousness is off the table for me. If I if he tells me something to do, I can grit my teeth and go do it. If he tells me something to think, I can read about it. But if he tells me to feel, I can't. I can't. I can't make myself do it, and therefore I have no pathway to self-righteousness. I can't just feel good about myself. This is what we deal with in, in college ministry with, with guys uh, in general. You have these 18 to 22-year-old guys who are, their hormones are at their peak, and they tend to struggle with lust. Okay, I'm not going to get explicit on you here. Um, but because they do, this becomes their whole paradigm for whether they're doing well or poorly. And so you say to a 19-year-old to a guy, how you doing? And he'll think to himself, well... How have I thought or acted in terms of lust this week? And if I have thought or acted well, then I feel good. I feel like I'm doing pretty well. And that's this whole category. But if you say to someone, hey, I want to ask you, um, how has your constant inexpressible joy been? You, you felt like you've been walking in the fullness of the joy of the Lord this week. How's your sorrow over your own sin been? How's your brokenness over the souls of people around you been there's nobody that's going to go doing pretty well nailed it 
I did pretty well this week. That doesn't happen. And therefore, this is the last point. All who understand the necessity of emotion, the commanding of emotion, are wonderfully broken. You're broken. It's right to be broken. It's, it's the place, it's the right place to be in the Christian life. The place of the tax collector in the temple. Saying, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner, is right. So when Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 says, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. That's verse 11. In verse 12, he says, you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak to you as children, widen your hearts also. He said, hey, Corinthians, widen your hearts. I want to go, how? <laughs> what do I do? I can't. I don't know what to do now. And this is the beauty of the brokenness is that this is the place when you say, I can't, you're right back at the place where you started as a believer. What happens when you become a believer is you say, Lord, I can't. I'm at my wit's end. I'm at rock bottom. I'm at the end of my rope. What do I do? And he says, let me tell you what you do. My son, the object of your faith, the one you're looking to, you stop looking here and you start looking at him, right? You get your, nose, you get your eyes off your own navel. You pull your eyes up. He says, my son, he walked this life and always felt the right thing. Every single time. He always mourned rightly. He always felt joy rightly. He always loved me with all of his heart and all of his soul, all of his strength. He always loved his neighbor as himself. He lived this perfect life. And then he went and died this death that you deserve because you've never felt everything you should feel. And he is now your standing place. The emotional life of Jesus is your standing place. He is the object of your faith. See, what, what all this brokenness, the reason it's so wonderful is because this is how you received him. And he's calling you back there again and again and again so that you can delight in him above yourself. You can be done with yourself. It's a wonderful place. So I want to conclude here uh, with some practicals. How do we live with wide open hearts? Like, how do, we, how do we develop this? And I just want to say, this is more aimed at the individual. All of this happens in the context of community, all right? Like, we, this is a question we're asking ourselves together. How do we live with wide open hearts? How do you, how, do you, how if you're restricted in your own affections, how do you develop those affections? I'm just going to give you some practicals here really quickly. Number one, you beg. <laughs> you beg the Lord. You get on your face. The beauty of being broken is it, is it fosters a relationship with your heavenly father. When Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses, you know, we've been in 500th anniversary of the Reformation. When he nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg, he, the first one said, when, when our Lord Jesus said, repent, when he called us to repent, he meant that the whole of the Christian life was to be one of repentance. And, and the beauty of being broken is you come to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm going to call to you in the day of trouble. This is Psalm 50, verse 15. He says, call to me in the day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will honor me. And so you come to him and say, Lord, I don't feel the kinds of, of sorrow and the kinds of joy that I want to feel today. So would you help me? And he comes and meets you and he says, son or daughter, he says, you know I love you. You know you are adopted into my family. You know that I, I care deeply for you and I, by my spirit, want to give this to you. He, if we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our, our Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So you come and ask and it develops this relationship. You just beg. You, this is how you develop a prayer life. Brokenness is how you develop a prayer life. I'm not saying I'm great at it. <laughs> I'm saying I want to be. Number two, 
How do we live with wide open hearts? How do we stimulate these affections? You, you, you step in out of the wind. This might be the most practical thing that I say. Uh, we live in a fast-paced, busy culture, busy world, productivity, efficiency. We're moving, we're moving, we're moving. And we live in a day and age where there's so much potential amusement and stimulation through your iPhone or whatever it is that coming in out of the wind to tell yourself about what's real about the world and let those facts change your emotions is hard to do. Like it takes intentionality. This is like the practice of the daily office that you see with certain priests and monks and nuns. That you would step in out of the wind and say, I'm going to set aside this time when I wake up, a couple times during the day, and at night before I go to bed where I'm going to be quiet. And I'm going to put on my scriptural visor uh, and, and let my emotions be trained and, and be stimulated by saying, what does it mean that God has, didn't spare his son? What are, what are the things that are real about the world? As opposed to just kind of walking out your door and being swept off your feet and going. But it, it takes intentionality to come in out of the wind and let those facts change your emotions. Number three, this is really practical, but seek to stir your affections through music. There's a reason we have music. Music is to help you feel things that you wouldn't have otherwise been feeling because it feels less mundane whenever there's music. That's why movie soundtracks are so powerful. Through music, through film, if you're, you're big into the art of film, obviously I wouldn't, I wouldn't endorse every movie. But not, and not just film, but some films that have intense, sorrowful type of themes, they just take me a long way. A film goes a long way in helping me worship, in enhancing my reality. Not just having, having me escape, but enhancing my reality. Um, through reading, maybe missionary biographies or some fiction does that for me. Or whatever it is. Matt Chandler, I remember him saying one time that he stirs his affections by walking through graveyards. Which sounds creepy. Uh, but I think the reason he did is because it, it wakes him up to his mortality almost instantly. And he starts to feel on the extremes. Sorrow and joy come when you see mortality. But that, that, those are things we have to intentionally practice to stir our affections. Jonathan Edwards will teach you quite a bit about that. Number four, let yourself feel sorrow. Let yourself feel sorrow. Uh, this, this harkens back to what I said earlier, but this, I, can't, I can't say that flippantly. I know that some of the sorrow is almost unbearable, but the beauty of the gospel is that it actually allows you to feel the things that before you were reluctant to feel without being crushed by that. Um, it is both the freedom to feel and the protection from being crushed. So allow yourself to feel sorrow because when you develop the capacity to feel those things that are sad, it's also widening your capacity to feel joy. That always rejoicing that will come and supersede your sorrow or undergird your sorrow. So let yourself feel it. Take time to allow yourself to feel sorrow. I know a girl in college, I, I didn't subscribe to this at the time, I still don't know that I do, but she said, every morning in your quiet time with the Lord, you should cry. I was like, okay, uh, I don't do that. Uh, so what, uh, what, what do you mean? And, but I think what she meant was uh, she's allowing herself a space where she would emote. It's going to be easier for some than others. Some of you guys in here are like, I haven't cried in 37 years. You know? So I don't know what that looks like. I'm saying allowing yourself a space to feel sorrow with the undergirding protection of the gospel that will never let you be crushed and then the last piece and this is where I'm ending is 
is this. By far the most powerful way that you can live with a wide open heart is this. You walk forward toward the Lord with your sin. You, you practice the discipline of repentance. It's a discipline. And you say, Lord, this is the place, not just where I didn't act this way today, not just where I didn't think this way today, but this is the place where I didn't feel This is where I felt deficiently today. This is where I I was not thankful for your mercy today. You bring this to him and you panic. You let yourself panic over this. And even this, you feel the desperation. Like you can't just make yourself panic. You're begging all the time. You say, Lord, I can't all of this. I, I I haven't loved my children with the deep, genuine love that Paul talks about that Jesus talks about, the kind of love that Jesus has, the kind of love that our Heavenly Father has for us. I haven't, I haven't felt the gratitude I should have for the things you've given me. I haven't felt deep, deep sorrow for the brokenness around me, for the people who are dying around me and, and on their way to an eternity of pain. I haven't, I haven't. And the, you start to feel this moment of terror or panic over your own sin that's called sorrow that's the extreme of sorrow and I just don't know that there's a deeper and more fruitful way to develop sorrow than over your own sin and then the Lord comes in and where your sin increases his grace abounds super abounds all the more and he says I love you anyway it's okay like I I love you and I'm going to take you with me on into eternity and you will you'll see me face to face You'll know as you've been fully known. And that, the relief right there, in that moment, the relief that you feel is like the the fountain of joy. It just, it it gives you, it's building the capacity that the brokenness over your sin in the face of God's perfection and the, the, the unbelievably relieving and comforting truth of his gospel. When, When you put those two things together, you have sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And, and then, when, and, then, and then you repeat that cycle. You live in that cycle, always saying, Lord, help. But we, all of us together, we live in this big, safe haven of God's love. And we say together, we're fighting for this. Nobody judges anybody's expression at this moment, you know. Well, but we can all ask, we can say, how, how are your affections? That's a question. And there, are a few, there are a few questions for discussion on the, on the sermon outline I would commend to you. But the call in general is for us just to be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing and living in those extremes. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you have not judged us according to our emotional capacity and our emotional, our, our, the aiming of our emotions. We thank you that you have been sorrowful on our behalf, enough to come and die for us, that you have rejoiced alongside of your Father and are doing so now and have paved a way for us to come with you. We praise you for your sacrifice for us. I pray that you would spark a move in us, the the tide to rise among us, that we would feel out on the extremes. I pray against feeling fine. Let us not live there. I want to be staggered by your world. You you have made a beautiful and intense world, and I pray that we would be staggered by it. I thank you for the, the, the beauty of grace, even as we walk forward with longing for this. Come, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.